Thanks for choosing this podcast by New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church of East Toledo. Listen during the sermon entitled Crossfire for the greatest bargaining tool that Jesus has ever given us. place and I think our online people we see here have not yet joined us. We hate them miss the announcements after that rousing song of worship we just did. We hate them missing out. Alright, it's on there now. Okay, a couple quick things. So we are rapidly approaching we're rapidly approaching the crosswalk. Two weeks out, a little less than two weeks out. So prepare, plan to be here on that Saturday. And in the meantime, invite anyone you know to come and march with us. And it's, they can be from whatever church. It don't matter if they believe in Jesus. Jesus walked that walk for us, and we're going to march for him and let, uh, let him be honored by our, our actions that day. Just kind of remind people and so on. 
And um, we'll be doing some promotion between now and then, and we're hoping to just kind of get the word out about uh, what Jesus did for us. That's it. We believe that Jesus is reviving our city internally sometimes, not externally, right? You see there's a lot of folks who are still kind of seem to be getting their way, and it's treacherous, and it's not right. Um, and every generation, uh, we, we see that there are people who seem to get away with what they're trying to get away with. But the reality is, Jesus is in charge. And so we're going to remind folks of that next Saturday. We are having an open house with that. There will be lunch served after the block party, or after the, uh, I'm sorry, crosswalk. There is no block party. After the crosswalk, we have lunch, cookout, and then we'll also have people who can tour the building, and we'll do some uh, drawings um, and just kind of have a fun time with it. And that'd be after, and the pantry will be open at the very end. So if folks need to come and get free groceries, they can do that. Or anybody that's at our block party that decides while they're there that they can get free groceries, they can get free groceries afterwards. I said block party again. I didn't mean to. We're not having a block party. We're having a lunch at an open house. I'll get that out of my system eventually. Okay. All right. I want to share a couple things. So you may or may, or may not know what this is. These just came in. This is the new uh, April version of the Pathway Christian Newspapers. This is a locally produced publication. Uh, can't endorse everything that you will find in it because some of the folks that write it, all kinds of pastors locally and other churches and stuff that write in it. Kyler, I was talking now. Thank you. All right. And so, I, but this is probably my favorite page, which I probably shouldn't have given that out because there's a whole bunch of other very spiritual stuff in here. But this is the joke page. Okay. And so. I just saw these as I was out there, and I thought I would just, just share a couple of these with you. Maybe you'll think they're funny, maybe you won't, but I thought they were funny. Uh, this first one might go over your head. It could. It almost did mine. There's a man who goes to a funeral, and he goes up to the widow, and he asks, Mind if I say a word? And she says, Please do. The man clears his throat and boldly says, Plethora. The widow replies, Thanks. That means a lot. Thank you. Very much. Plethora means a lot, by the way. Okay. Uh, there are two tourists who are driving through Wales. They stop for lunch in some place whose name I can barely pronounce. It's Lawn Fair, Pigs, Tin Willie, Baby Loud, Goggery, Quick Still Drop, something, blah, blah, blah. You can read it in the paper if you want. Anyway, and it says, as they sit down for lunch, one of the tourists asks the waitress, Can you settle an argument for us, please? Can you pronounce the name of where we are right now very slowly? The waitress leans over the table and mouths very slowly. Burger King. <laughs> okay, there's one more that I saw here that I liked. Um, there you go. Okay, so husband took his young daughter to the grocery store with him. In addition to the beautiful, to the healthful items on the carefully prepared shopping list, they returned with a box of sugar-laden cookies. The man noticed the glare of his wife and said, "This box of cookies has one third fewer calories than usual." Why is that? The mother asked. Because we ate one third of the cookies on the way home. Okay, so it's really not about comedy, uh, but those are fun things. If you want to take a look at that, you can. Fairly regularly, I have an article on there. I do not have any there this month. Um, there are a lot of local pastors. There's a really good article in there this month about how to defend some aspects of your faith. So if you have people who like, for example, who will allege and say that they don't believe certain things about Christianity because of X, well, they have a list of three or four things like that, and then he gives some arguments or some reasons why we know what we know is true. That's called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the science of knowing why you know what you know and why you believe what you believe. And so there's a few of those in there, and things like that are always helpful. 
Um, we're talking a lot about study this month, and remember, I want to remind you now that we said at the inspiration moment that I was going to be asking you, what commitment could you make, or what plan would you make to be able to study your Bible? How, what would that look like? And I'll share mine, uh, and maybe share yours, but I'll also ask you then, what steps will you take to try to make sure that happens? Okay? And, um, and so we'll, if you didn't do that already in preparation to come today, then you can do it between now and the inspirational moment. We can share it. If you didn't know about it, it's fine. But you might be sitting here going, well, I think I could do Tuesday night Bible study. I could read my Bible, you know, five minutes a day, five days a week, or and I could set a reminder on my phone. You know, simple plans like that. And, you know, what, what would you do to make that happen? And we're going to talk about that again at the inspirational moment. And maybe somebody's got something to share that they've seen in the scripture this week. But right now, we're going to pray, and then we're going to praise Jesus a little bit more. Amen. Let's do that. Father in heaven, you are an awesome God. You are the giver of life and the re-giver of life. Because people sinned against you, and we, we all have. There may be young people in the room, small children who don't realize that uh, they have, Lord, but because we all have. We were separated from you by that sin. Not able to maintain a lasting personal relationship with the God of heaven, which is exactly what people were created for. Because of that, you were found faithful. And because of that, we know you. We searched for you even for a second, and there you were, never far away to begin with. Lord, you're an awesome God. You're a loving God and a kind God. And even as we're living in that, those days, approaching this year's celebration of Easter, if we make it there, if Jesus doesn't come again first, or if we don't somehow perish, Easter is just around the corner, and it's our remembrance. It's not so much Easter. It's Resurrection Sunday. It's the day that we celebrate the resurrection of our Savior. Lord, because Jesus died for us, we realize we've we got to be honest about who we were. and be honest about the mistakes and the choices that we made. We needed your forgiveness. Maybe we need it right now in this moment more than ever. I ask you, Lord, for that forgiveness for anyone here who may need it and remember it that it was provided for by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, God the Son. Lord, we thank you for this place, for all the resources that you provide, for every soul that entered the house, for the, for the impetus to be here, the impetus to praise you, the desire to praise you in so many different ways, the recognition that we have of who you are, and that you've walked with us and been with us through things that we've been through. Thank you, Lord, for the folks that prepared the music, for the sermon, the message laid on my heart, for the teachers and the children's lesson, and the volunteers who worked so hard to make it possible for us to come together, serve one another, and look to you. Lord, we ask you now that you'd be with our sick and hurting. It's, it's numerous. You now I'm praying for my wife. Lord, that the pain in her neck and her back and shoulder would be gone. If you want to do it by an, uh, an anti-inflammation shot, or you want to do it by a miracle from heaven, I guess I'm okay either way. We'll leave it in your hands. We're praying for the Bristers and the entire plans in Mississippi and celebrate Papa's birthday. And uh, Lord, we thank you for the ministry of that man as he has served in his church for something like 60 years. We thank you for our deacon, Tony Brister, and he served us for many, many years. And Lord, we ask you to bring them back safely. Lord, pray for Brother Tim this morning, for Sister Chris, for Perry and Stacy. Lord, we pray for Junior's conditions, what she's going through. We pray for Jason Wellington, Lord, as he's trying to push through some stuff. 
and stay close to you. I pray, Lord, that we'll all do just that today. But our praises, they might come from a broken place, or they might come from a place where we're super excited and joyous, or anywhere in between, but that our praises would bring you honor and glory as we reach new heights in Jesus today. We look up to you on the throne, and we honor you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to have a little competition for a second. I need all the adults in the room to stand up. Ricky, you're an adult. I know you don't act like it sometimes, but you are an adult. Please stand up. All right, so I'm going to say hi. Adults only are going to yell hi back at me. You ready? Oh, no. Hi. Hi. Okay, children, stand up. No, you can stay standing. Children, children come on. Stand up. Hi, children. Hi. Okay, who do you think was louder, adults or kids? Adults. Okay, there are four. There are four more children in this room than there are adults. Okay, and we're tired. Our voices are tired. My voice is tired. So, children, be louder than the adults. Try it again. Hi, children. Hi.
I just want you to know, just for the record, my voice was not tired until I said hi. So, uh, come to that moment, and today, before we start sharing anything, if you have something you want to share, just hang on to it for a second. Before we do that, we're going to talk a little bit about our study plans. Um, physical discipline will, will aid you much. If you control what you eat, if you exercise, if you control your sleep, if you take the right micronutrients especially, if you drink enough water, those kinds of things. Physical discipline will age you much. Everybody can see that. Um, I would you know, love to have a movie star body. I just wasn't born with one. Um, and then I never did anything to have them. That's basically it. In fact, actually, movie star bodies are probably not really all that healthy because they're a little too slim, maybe. But the bottom line is, if you take care of yourself physically, you will have benefits. Spiritually, Paul wrote to Timothy, it's the same thing. If you discipline yourself spiritually, you will benefit in a myriad of ways, or a plethora of ways, right? All kinds of ways, much variety, uh, benefit come out of spiritual disciplines. One of the spiritual disciplines we study roughly, we tend to do 10 to 12, we do one every six months with an emphasize and study, and well, just as you might decide to exercise three times a week, or every other day, so it's three times one week, four the next, and so on, or you might decide to eat a certain thing, not eat a certain thing, and this is how I'm going to make sure I don't do that. Disciplining your physical body, you have to do the same thing with your spiritual body. So I ask you in advance to kind of make a plan, or take some, to set apart some steps for yourself, and then to sort of think about how you will complete that plan. Well, what will you do? How often will you do it? When will you do it? And then how will you encourage yourself or ensure that you do that? Okay? So first of all, we're going to take it from the back end. Somebody come up, somebody tell me something creative that you came up with to encourage yourself to actually follow through with the plan that you made to study, whatever that is. I mean, encourage a way that you decided to encourage yourself. Ron Matt. So I plan on every day when I come home from work, um, some days I, I beat my wife home and some days she beats me home. So um, the days that I beat her home, I'm going to let the dog outside and walk the dogs doing this business outside, I'm going to look up the topic or verse to go through. And then my first thing when I come back in, I'm going to go in and sit down, go through that verse or that topic and write a few things down. Okay. Um, the days that I beat my wife home, I'm just going to, or that my wife beats me home, I'm just going to go and look for a topic and, and sit down 10 minutes or so here and there to start with. Uh, All right. Write some stuff. Cool. Okay. So, and then, how are you going to do it? The first thing right after I get home from work, it should be easy, easier to discipline myself. There you go. So you put it right in a certain spot. You already know what your schedule looks like at that time. You already know how it's going to go. Either A, I'm going to get home first, in which case I have to do this, or B, I'm going to get home second, in which case I go right to this and right away. I like that. Okay. So basically, that that method of encouraging or method of disciplining yourself is attaching it to something else you do. So he attached it he attached it to something else he does every day or a certain situation that he ha that happens every day after work. Good stuff. Okay? Who else has got it? Something a way that we're talking mainly about the way you're ensuring that it's gonna get done. Something you decided to do that you would make sure it happens. Sure. 
Well, my, I am one of those people that I can't have notifications stick across the top of my phone. It makes me crazy. I have to clear them. I have to look at them and clear them. So I have two things. One, the verse of the day that I read, and sometimes I've been really good with it. I've gotten up to hundreds of days. I got almost to a year, and then I missed it, and it, it drove me crazy. So I now have it popping up at me at noon as a notification, and I don't take it off until I've read it. And so I see it all day, but I don't have time to read it, and I so I can't take it off until I've read it. So that, it works for me because I can't. I do the same thing with, with calendar appointments for work. So that's what I've done. I've got a workbook that I've started doing. And I made myself a calendar appointment to do it three times a week. And I can't clear it until it's done. So it's going to sit there at the top of my phone <laughs> until I do it. Absolutely yeah, I think that's called the sliver in my paw method. Yes. 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 So it'll be driving you nuts until you do it. And, and, and it's good. Um, those are methods that we can use to discipline ourselves and make ourselves do it. That's very good. All right. Anybody else got one? Here. Um, I decided I'm just going to do it the first five minutes of my lunch break every day. And it'll be like before I get up to go get my lunch or whatever. I'll be already sitting there, not having work to do. So I'm on my break and should be able to have a couple minutes to focus on it every day, well, every week. Yeah, part of, that way it's part of your lunch. You get a what an hour for lunch? Yeah. Is it? And you do roughly the same time every day? Mm, or whenever. Generally, for that? It's, it's, well, <laughs> I, I choose it, but it's okay. kind of like between noon and two thirty usually. Okay, but either way, you get an hour yeah. and the first five minutes. That's cool. So you're putting it at the beginning, and so if you're hungry, then you're like, I need to study that. Yeah. <laughs> That's good stuff. All right. Who else? Anybody else got a, a method that you're using to keep yourself encouraged? Got something? It's not a method I've been doing, but um, I just looked through my Bible, and Matthew is one of the, probably the most spoken, like, thing, a verse that came out to me for Easter. Okay. It, it really um, talks to me about, I forgot what I was all right, we'll come back to you, okay? Go ahead and look at it again if you want to come back. All right, so those are the methods that some folks are using to kind of encourage themselves to follow through with their plans, and you already heard some plans, right? So we've got a plan to first part of lunch to study, a plan first thing on the way home to study, a plan locking in notifications and a Bible study book, all right? So what are some other things somebody else said, well, I'm going to study, this is going to be my method of study. Somebody else give me an example. You know mine, so mine is I... I, I uh, 80 days ago today. 80 days ago today, I made a commitment to do it first thing every morning before I do anything else. So I grab my phone and I go into and I go into the Uversion Bible app and I post a published comment. So if you want to see my comments, you can't hold notes are in there. And uh, I have missed in 80 days. I have missed twice. And by missing, I say I did something else. I accidentally did something else first. I still did it. But I accidentally did something else first. Like the one time I caught myself, I was clearing the notifications on my phone. <laughs> and I'm like, oh wait, I forgot to do Bible study. And I went and did, did my Bible study. And the other time I got up and like went to the bathroom or something. And I was like, oh my gosh. And which, you know, I guess nature calls you got to do what you got to do. But, but anyway, the point is, so out of 80 days, I've done it first thing. And then I found what's neat about it for me has been I found that that has encouraged me. If I did it first thing in the morning, then later in the day, whenever I have time, like I was sitting, one day I was sitting in the... Um, the 
doctor's office at the EMT, and I had nothing else going on, and I went, oh, well, I can do some Bible study. I pulled my book, my Bible out, and I did like three more public notes on different verses and stuff. So having done it first thing in the morning, puts it in my head, and then I do it throughout my day whenever I have spots that are empty. My goal would be that I, I think I'm going to see it already. My goal would be that I would look back at it after a period of time, and I know my Bible better and better and better. You don't have to know your Bible better and better and better to be a follower of Jesus. In fact, there are people who know Bibles way better than I do who are not Christians at all. right? But I just think I would like to do that. I would like to be becoming my own version of an expert in the Word. So but I think any of these plans will do that. So that's mine. What about you? Anybody else make a, a decision to do it at a certain time of day or a certain way or a certain number of days or anything like that? Going once. Twice. Okay. Then we're going to share what have you seen this week? What popped out at you? What inspired you? What did you think God was saying? Hey, look at that. Or something like that. Got something? Please. I got one. Um, I'll come up here. Um, it's actually something you said last week that sparked me, and I went back in my phone and found a list of verses okay. that I had compiled <clears throat> over the years. These are all verses that go along with songs that we sing and worship. So I listen to a lot of music, and so I add to this every once in a while. I'm going to read a couple, just a couple of them, not all of them, and see if you can pick out what songs they might be. Okay. Maya, this is all on you, baby. <laughs> oh, no, you'll get some The name of the song is usually in the verse that it comes from, so. Or at least the chorus, maybe. Yeah. But see, I, I could know the chorus and still not know the song. Very okay, easily. so this is um, Second Chronicles 7, 13, and 14. And I started with 13 because 14 is in the middle of the sentence. Um, 13 says, If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. I heard the chorus. I don't know the name of the song. See. If, if my people pray. What is? Did we get it? Yes. I heard the chorus. There, it's in a couple of songs, but what if my people pray is in there. This one also. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His love endures forever. That's in like three of our songs. Can we name one of them? <laughs> One of the three. His, his uh, love endures forever. Forever. The, the, forever. the title is just forever. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> they should name that one better. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's pretty, pretty well the most important word there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, love forever. Like, love endures forever. Probably because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. Better than life. Woo! Okay, wait, I got one. I'm super excited. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I'd rather stand at your threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wickedness. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Redeemer lives? I got three. Yep. Yep, 
comes specifically from scripture in the word. I'll bet you, uh, you would, like, it might not be the exact words, but I'll bet you you could actually find a verse behind every song. The challenging ones would be where the songs that we do that you go, I can't, I don't know, and find it in scripture. That's, that, that would be a fun study to do for anybody who could actually remember the names of any songs. It would be fun, but not so much for me. All right, anybody else got something? Okay, Brother Tony Tate, would you pray for us at this time? And then as we trans, we're going to do uh, tithes and offerings and transfer a little bit more worship and lesson. Right. Jesus, we thank you. I do believe it's Isaiah 55, but you say that your word will go where it's supposed to go. Just like the mountains, the snow comes off the mountains and it goes to the plants, its crop, so is your word. It, it will go null and void. And so, God, we just thank you for your word. It's in the music. The word will be today giving the word, uh, the words that we share every day. God, the originality of the word, that it's your truth, it's your hope, it's your love. Um, all the promises of God is yes and amen. And so, God, we just thank you for this time. And, uh, God, the tithes and offerings, because you gave, God, we're giving today, giving of ourselves, and just so thankful for what you're doing now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. charge of choosing music and if you look at this room we have proved already this morning we have more children than adults in this room so that being said as worship leaders our basic goal is for the congregation to be able to worship and if the congregation is mostly children then we're going to do some children's songs so we need some children on their feet we need some preschoolers up in the front here because they should know this one right come on up here kyler zayden as soon as the offering is through, put up their drinks. We're gonna go ahead and get started. Should they know the song? Yeah. I love this song. I'm gonna be a preschooler again. Yes. Wait, I'm gonna do motions like preschoolers. So.
Dancers get candy.
my hand hurts. I'm pretty sure I used to use that one in high school. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> All right. So, one of my favorite genres, and this won't come as any surprise to some of you, is what you'd call like medieval times or knights in armor and supposedly sorcery and dragons, but really that's one of my favorite genres. I've written a number of fiction books uh, set in that genre and fantasy and then kind of maybe adds in some magic, things like that. Um, and you may know or you may not know, and I'm gonna, if not, I'm going to kind of bring you up to speed on it, that back then armies were largely composed of men on horseback called cavalry, and they might have been knights, but knights were actually relatively uncommon in uh, armored combat, except for in certain parts of the world. Uh, or heavy cavalry, which would be like heavy chain armor and swords on horseback. Um, and their big benefit is they could still move pretty quick, even though they were wearing heavy chain armor. Um, but a lot of times they were in more danger because then their horse would be killed out from underneath them. They'd wind up on the ground, and then they, it was hard for them to get up in the heavy chain armor, especially if they weren't well trained for it. So a lot of the times they would fight on foot. And then there was infantry. And infantry had maybe uh, spears or pikes or whatever, pretty rarely swords. Sword was sort of a gentleman's weapon, um, or they might have had a short sword or something like that, like a cutlass, like a pirate might use, or whatever they could get their hands on. If they were what's called levies, they were brought up, they had pitchforks or sharpened sticks or whatever they could, they, the noble would come through and say, hey, you're coming to war. And they'd be like, okay, I'm going to grab anything I can fight with. And they might or might not be armed. And then there were the archers. And the archers, uh, if there were sufficient bows, anybody could fire a bow, pretty much. Um, and you could be relatively quickly trained to fire at a set target, even up to like a quarter mile away. Um, or uh, Let's say 400 feet, not 400 yards. Um, pretty accurately. Okay? And so they'd give them these bows, and for a long time they were just, their bows were like this long. The English invented a longbow that was as tall as a man, longbow, it was hard to pull, and a normal Englishman couldn't pull it, um, but the farmers and strong workers could pull it, and they would make up a group of archers, and this is where it gets a little tricky for the people who like this genre with me, and then they would go out to combat, and they would line up their troops, okay, and they put the infantry in the field, and the cavalry would usually be backing away because they could get wherever you needed them real fast. And where did they put the archers? Anyone know? Everyone's like, this is a trick question, right? Behind. Okay. You'd think behind because they're weak in melee, right? But actually, they put them in front. They always put them in front. But then as the enemy would charge up, the archers would then retreat behind the infantry. So, they didn't, so you're right after, but in the beginning, the archers were in front. And actually, if two armies would come together, it would look like this, an, ar an army of archers with infantry behind, an army of archers with infantry behind, or sometimes if they had a lot of infantry, they'd split them and have them on the sides. And the archers would be shooting at each other or trying to shoot the infantry if they can reach that far or whatever. And there would be a lot of arrows flying for a while. And then eventually, the infantry would charge. And when the infantry charged, they'd shoot them a little bit. And then they would run behind their infantry and let their infantry fight them. And that's, that was the actual tactic. And it lasted that way for decades, uh, over, probably over a century. And we always think, I always think, like, uh, being, like playing military games and stuff like that, I would always try to put my archers out of reach of the infantry because if they get charged, they're going to die because they don't have good armor, they don't have good weaponry, right? But there's a real good reason for why 
you don't put your archers behind firing over top of your infantry. And then you think about it, it is because... Misfire, hit your own infantry, right? When you're standing back there and you're going to fire at the enemy, you, can, you now cannot see them. So you can volley fire over top of your own troops, but you're shooting at what? You can't see what you're shooting at. So it would be somebody going, they're at about 100 yards, just fire blindly. And you fire 200 arrows at 100 yards blindly, and what do you hit? Virtually nothing, right? Very, very limited. But if you're out front and you can see the enemy archers or the enemy infantry or whatever, you can see them plain as day, you can literally target individual soldiers. And an English bowman could be trained a commoner, an ordinary guy, not a military guy, not been in the army his whole life or anything like that, but within a month he could be trained to accurately hit a human-sized target at 400 feet, which is pretty far. Somebody's going to run to you, you have plenty of time to shoot them before they can get to you, and then if, if they're getting close, you run behind the infantry. So they would aim at an individual target. We always think of, like, in the movies, you always see them, like, tons of arrows blocking out the sun, right? And It wasn't like that. They were shooting at individual targets most of the time, and fairly accurately. So you may have heard of, in military terms, the reason why they don't put the archers behind is because of friendly fire. Friendly fire is when you shoot somebody who's on your side, right? And it's a real thing. You also may have been heard of, heard of been, being caught in the crossfire. You ever heard of that? Being caught in the crossfire. What does it mean to be caught in the, caught in the crossfire? Two sides shooting. Yeah, so two sides are shooting at each other, and you're stuck in the middle, right? And you could think about that with... I don't want to get ahead of myself. You can think about it in terms of Christian life. Demons, evil spirits, they hate God. Satan himself, he hates God. They despise what God has done. Okay? And they don't believe, they didn't believe, let's say, that God would find a way. Then once he did, now they're just waiting for judgment. And they still do not believe that they should repent. They think God is unjust. Maybe they're holding out hope, whatever. But they're firing arrows, if you will, at God. And God is taking them out one at a time, taking them out of our way, dealing with their issues, dealing with their plots, things like that. And so there is a crossfire, and you can be in the middle and taken out by that crossfire. So what is it called then, and again, asking the, if there's any military experts or people who like this, this genre in the room, what is it called when you fire into melee? So when the soldiers have already started fighting, and the infantry charges, and the infantry charges, and they start fighting, and there's... They're flailing at each other, or they're piled up against each other, their spears trying to poke over their shields or whatever, and the archers fire in there. What is that called? That's the correct answer. There is no name for that. You know why there is no name for that? I got that one. Yeah, I got that one. Yeah, stupid. Yeah, that's what they call it. Stupid. Don't do that, right? Yeah, and actually, that's not, it's danger close but it's danger close before melee is joined. So as they're charging in, they fire danger close to try to stop them from joining. But once they join, that's not danger close. That's on target. You know, you're killing your guys and their guys at the same time with modern artillery. With archery, you fire in there, you're going to kill your guys or their guys, and it's hard to know which one, right? So if Tony and Tate and I are wrestling around over a pair of swords or whatever, we've dropped our weapons, we're wrestling around or whatever, and you try to shoot me to save Tony... At any moment, Tony could be in front of you or I could be in front of you. It doesn't, we're wrestling around. So you don't, you're aiming at my back, and then by the time the arrow travels from the bow to there, or even the gun, by the time it travels from the gun to there, I, we spin around and you shoot him in the back, even though you were shooting me, right? You don't fire into melee. Okay, now I want you to bear that in mind then as we look at this text. 
Also, you might want to kind of like fasten your seatbelt because this is going to go by fairly quickly. And I hope you brought your thinking caps so you don't miss out on whatever it is that the Lord really has uh, blessed us with out of this text. But we will slow down at one very key point, which was something that I had not really noticed before, even though I've read this story quite a few times. And so we'll hammer that one home before we're done. Okay? So our text today, and maybe you'll give me a hoot, a holler, or an amen, is John chapter 12. Amen. John 12, 9 is where we'll start reading. John 12, 9. So you know that Jesus has to get himself into uh, Jerusalem in order to get crucified. And that's the part of the story we're at, where he's literally about to go into Jerusalem in a sense from which he will never return. Of course, he will be resurrected and then be alive again, and he will travel the area again for a while, but his physical body will never come out of Jerusalem the same again. Okay? So we're going to start reading in 9. Before we're done, we'll look at a little bit before, but I just want you to see from 12.9 on. The great multitude, therefore, of the Jews learned that he, that's Jesus, was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So this story is after John chapter 11, in which Lazarus was raised from the dead. That's all you got to really worry about there. And they were coming out to see Jesus, but not only to see Jesus, they wanted to see Lazarus alive again. But the chief priests took counsel that they might put Lazarus to death also. So now they're going to kill Jesus, and all the time of Jesus' public ministry, they've been off and on waffling, deciding whether or not to kill Jesus, and now they're committed. In John 11, it says they're committed, they've got a plan, they're going to figure it out, they're going to kill Jesus. But they also tell, say they're going to kill Lazarus. That caught my attention. Verse 11 says, Because on account of him, that's Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away, and were believing in Jesus. There's a lot of Jewish people, and they were supposed to believe in Jesus. That was the way it was supposed to be. And a lot of them were starting to believe in Jesus, and they believed, the others believed it was because of Lazarus. So since Lazarus has been brought back to life, if this one has power over death, that's really something. And that people were starting to believe in Jesus, and they thought it was because he had brought Lazarus back to life. Did you get a, did you get a, a pad? House come. I need his notes because he does a really good job of taking notes. Thank you so much. I slacked off on that apparently. Or maybe you weren't in your seat or something. Okay, back on task. All right, so anyway, um, people believing in Jesus because of Lazarus. On the next day, the next day, the great multitude who had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to cry out. We'll stop right there for a second. So Jesus is getting ready to go into the city, into Jerusalem, and they heard that he's coming, and a lot of the crowd come out, and they take the branches of the palm trees. This is about Palm Sunday, where we celebrate Palm Sunday technically next Sunday. It's the Sunday before his crucifixion. And they went out to meet him and began to cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Obviously, that's Old Testament, right? But the word Hosanna has a special meaning. We'll talk about that in one second. Blessed is he, well spoken of, laid out his, his path before God. God has laid out his path. He who comes in the name of the Lord, the one coming on behalf of God, that Lord is creator God, Yahweh, the God, the God of heaven. Jesus was coming on behalf of God. Even, they said, was he the king of Israel. He was the king coming on behalf of God. Hosanna. 
Pray, Lord, save us. The word Hosanna essentially means pray, Lord, save us. So in other words, here is a man coming on behalf of God, and we are appealing to him to save us. See, they were recognizing Jesus for who Jesus was. Some of them believed in him, some of them didn't, but they saw him coming into Jerusalem. Maybe this is it. Maybe this is the coming of God's kingdom. We're going to throw off the yoke of the Romans, or we're going to see God do amazing things and change us as a people. They were looking for that. Pray, God, save us. Pray, Lord, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Again, a text from the Old Testament. And Jesus, elsewhere in the other Gospels, you can read a little more detail. We may do that next week. I don't know for sure. Yeah, it's also another song that's related to a, a verse. Yep, absolutely. So Jesus is riding in on a donkey. And they're laying the palm fronds, that's what that's called, from the trees down in front of him. And then it says in 16, these things his disciples did not understand at first. In other words, the disciples, the people who were following him and had been taught by him, and stuff, they didn't quite get what was going on there. They didn't realize that it was the fulfillment of prophecy. But when Jesus was glorified, after he was crucified, after he was glorified, after he was really lifted up, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So they realized they were fulfilling prophecy after they had already done it. They didn't go, oh, let's get palm fronds and lay them down. Let's get a donkey's colt. Let's do that. They didn't do that. They went, oh, ha, now I see it. In the Old Testament, this was explained. Now I get it. Verse 17. And so the multitude who were with him went, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead were bearing him witness. So there's a lot of people who were there when he called Lazarus out of the tomb, who, and he brought Lazarus back to life, and they were walking around in the crowd, and they were saying, yeah, this is the one. This is the guy that brought Lazarus back to life. This is the Messiah. This is the anointed one, right? Verse 18. For this cause also the multitude went and met him, because they heard that he had performed this sign. So there's a lot of people coming out because they heard that Jesus had done this amazing thing. The Pharisees, therefore, said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, that's an out-of-place statement, isn't it? Who are the Pharisees talking to? I read this the first time through, and I went, I don't, I'm not sure I fully understand. All of a sudden, in the middle of this text, it says, you see that you're not doing any good. So they're talking about the people that are praising Jesus? Or... Are they talking to the people that are spreading the story about Lazarus? And that seems to make sense, doesn't it? It says, look, the world has gone after him. So many people following him. Verse 20 says, <clears throat> now there were certain Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. So there were, these are Grecian people. They're traveling up to. These, therefore, came to Philip. So some Greek people came to Philip. Now, remember, Greeks are Gentiles. They're not Jews. They don't have the Old Testament teaching about Jesus, right? So they're getting it from the outside a little bit. These therefore came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came, and they told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, saying, now this is Jesus speaking, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So there's a moment in time in which God is going to shine a light. Whenever you see that word glorified in the New Testament, always think of shining a light on something. Remember the spotlights in the old days? If you ever go to theater, you see they shine a light on the main person talking or on the main singer, right? 
So glorified, always think of like shining a light out. So now has come the time for the Son of Man to have a light shined on him, to be, to be glorified. 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. I want you to think for a moment, if you had a little Ziploc baggie and a single grain seed, enough to grow one stalk of grain, right? And if you kept it all your life in that little Ziploc baggie, how much grain would you have in the end? You'd have exactly one little grain seed in a Ziploc baggie. That's what you'd have. But if you could take it out and plant it in good soil, it would grow up. When it grows up and it grows to a certain point, it does what they call it goes to seed. Now, when it goes to seed, how many seed will that one stalk of grain produce? Hundreds, if not thousands. Now, let's say you harvest that seed, and in the next season, you plant all of those seeds, again, in good soil. He rose up, and each one produces hundreds of thousands. The math has already gotten beyond what we can easily calculate, right? Millions of seeds from that one little seed in that one little baggie. But unless it goes to ground, and when it goes to ground, it breaks open, it begins to grow the roots of a stalk of grain. Unless that happens, it cannot multiply like that. But if that happens, it can multiply. Now, we know that Jesus is talking about his death. Verse 25 says, He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. So Jesus could be saying about himself, let's start there, that if he would hold back his life, if he would not allow himself to be crucified, then he would not fulfill God's plan for him, go to heaven, be in glory, be at the right hand of God, etc. But clearly by the tense, he's talking about not only Jesus, he's talking about other people too, right? So in other words, if you're wrapped up in, if you're very concerned about what you're going through, who you are, what you're like, if you become and I don't mean, to, not, not in a really bad negative way do I mean to say this, but if you become self-centered, if you're concerned about this right here, Jesus said, he who loves his life loses it. The more time you spend concerned about this right here, the more likely you are to get to the end of that right there and have nothing. But he says, but he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. Now, we know we're not a people of hatred. It doesn't mean hate it like as in I'm going to go commit suicide or something stupid like that. It doesn't mean it's being self-destructive or jumping out of planes without parachutes to prove you can do it, that kind of thing. No, he means ordering your life accordingly. What is the most important thing? What is the least important thing? Now, you take it for what it's worth, but I want to explain this to you, and everybody needs to be listening. Girls, you listen. This is really huge. Whatever you want, whatever you really want, that's the least important thing. Whatever drives you, whatever you're pursuing, whatever you're after right now in the moment, that's the least important thing. The only way that's not true is if you're allowing that want to be informed by what God wants. Now, if, for example, you say, well, God, what does God want the most? And you think about that, you meditate on it, you study on it, you say, well, what God wants the most is for people to become Christians, for people to have a relationship with him through Jesus Christ as Lord. And so you, you then decide that what you want the most is for people to become Christians, to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be saved, right? Now that want can become the most important want in your life because it's a want that God wants, right? So we're wanting what God... So if you want what God wants, okay. But if you want what you want, 
oh man, I really, I'm hungry, I really need a good sandwich, or, you know, I, I gotta have some money to put gas in my car, or you're driven by whatever your circumstances are, those wants are the least important things. We make them out to be the most important. We say hierarchy of needs, right? When a person needs to eat, listen to me. If you never ate a bite of food ever and literally starved to death, you shouldn't. But if you did from this moment on, don't, by the way, because if you would, I will make sure you eat. But the bottom line is if you did do that and you starved to death from here on out, the want that you have for food between this moment and your death is still less important than what God wants for you. Even though you will die at the end of that time, it's still less important. So when you get wrapped up and you say, well, I can't tell anybody about Jesus because I ain't got no food. I got to put food on the table. When you get wrapped up and say, well, I can't tell anybody about Jesus because I've got bills I got to pay. You got to realize you're moving those life wants back in the hierarchy of needs, moving them back up to the top above what God wants. The Bible says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added unto you. What was it talking about? It's a food, sustenance, job, income, etc. Put God's desires first, the needs of the kingdoms first, and the rest of that is subservient. But I know what you're going to say. There comes a moment in time where it's either I die doing what God wants me to do or I live working in my own wants and desires. So somebody puts a gun to my head and says, if you, if you will not... If you profess the name of Jesus right now, I'm going to pull this trigger and blow your head off. And you're like, well, all I got to do is just lie. And Jesus will forgive me anyway, right? So I'm just going to lie and I'll get out of this. And then you lie and they pull the trigger anyway. And then you stand before Jesus and he says, but wait a minute. Your last act on the earth was to deny me. See, so you say, but there's going to come, everybody, you want to take it to the nth degree? I'll take it there. At the moment of your death, Whatever God wants has to be greater than whatever you want or you're going to hell. You want to take it there? I'll take it there. That's what Jesus said. I didn't say it. He said, he who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. Come on. Greatest thing you could ever have. God himself says, come follow me. And he's going to get it right. And where I am, there shall my servant also be. Wherever I go, whatever I go through, there shall my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. I'm going to read 27 just so you get the complete thought. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Faced with his crucifixion and his torture, Jesus was able to say, God's wants are greater than my own. All right, so there's three things in here I want you to see. As I said, a couple are going to go by pretty quick, so hang on. The first one is the Hosanna, blessed is he. We come in the name of Jesus. So if you say Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that could be us. Okay, but that Hosanna is iffy. It's a sticky wicket, isn't it? If somebody comes to you and says, pray, Lord, save me, you say, I can't save you. Pray, Lord, save me. You say, I can't save you. Jesus can save you, right? Anyone who would say that they can save you didn't come in the name of the Lord. 
And there will be those. In fact, Jesus says there will be those coming in the end times, and some of them are out there already right now, who profess a lesson, a teaching, if you will, that if you embrace their teaching and follow them the way they say, then you'll be saved. And if you won't, you won't be. It has nothing to do with Jesus. If you'll come and confess your sins to a certain guy, then your sins will be forgiven. But if you won't, then you won't be forgiven. That's Hosanna. Pray, Lord, save us. But we can't save them. But Jesus can. He is the king of Israel. He is the creator of the universe in flesh and then resurrected. Nothing was made except that which was made through him. Pray, Lord, save us. When you're talking with someone, they need to know, I need to know, we need to remember that it is Jesus who can save us. He is Jesus Lord. If he is not Jesus Lord, he cannot save us. But he is Jesus Lord, and therefore he can save us. So say to the Lord, pray, Lord, save us. Please, Jesus, save us. That's our prayer. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. How do you become someone who comes in the name of the Lord? Pray, Lord, save us. Decide that you are a follower of Jesus. Decide that you want to go where Jesus is going and do what Jesus is doing. And, I, and as a foreshadowing, sometimes it's going to suck. You're going to go places and do things that you never wanted to go nor do. But you're going to do it with Jesus. And then ultimately you're going to go somewhere that you always wanted to go and always will. Notice that Jesus was nothing more than pleading by his very existence for people to recognize that he was Lord and King of Israel, and I submit King of the church, King of all people, King of all mankind, King of all humanity, and not King for a day or for a year or for a lifetime, but for an eternity. He was the Davidic King promised who would sit on the throne forever. He was not coming to free them from the Romans. He was coming to free them from death. Pray, Lord, save us. Save us from the Romans. We want to tax ourselves. Save us from the Romans. We want to generate our own army. Save us from the electric bill. Save us from the broken down car. Save us from the broken relationship. God is Lord of way more than that. We're so worried about our concerns and praying, Lord, save us from our basic concerns because, number one, we know he has the power, but because, number two, we're concerned about this life. In shackles they sat, in stocks they were, and they sang the praises of Jesus into the middle of the night, and all the prisoners sat listening to them. And an earthquake shook the junk, the jail, and the chains broke off. And the jailer rushed in, going to commit suicide, and Paul said, no, no, don't do that. Don't commit suicide. We're all still here. None of us have left. And so he didn't. And he said to Paul, he said, what must I do to be saved? They were in shackles, singing praises because they were not concerned about this life. They were concerned about the next one. They were concerned about the God of the universe, the one who rules, who is king. They were giving glory to the one who was bigger than their situation. They were praying, Lord, save us. And then the earthquake came. And instead of them running free and possibly being caught on another day and causing the jailer to lose his life and all that, there they were saving the jailer. And he was going to commit suicide. And they said, no, don't do that. And he said, what must I do to be saved? And he said, believe and be baptized and you and your whole household will be saved. And so they could have been, they said, pray, Lord, save us. And they could have used their salvation to escape jail. 
and go on witnessing for God, but instead they use their salvation to save the jailer and his whole household. Pray, Lord, save us. I would add to that, you've got to stop praying to yourself. You've got to stop praying to your TV. You've got to stop praying to your money. You've got to stop praying to your, the people in relationship with you and pray, Lord Jesus, King of my life, save me. And when he does, and he decides to use you for whatever he's going to use you for, you'd be willing. Foxhold conversions are a very real thing. Down in the pit in the ground, mortars are dropping. Lord, if you just... If you save me, I'll do whatever you want for the rest of my life. And some of them stick and some of them don't. You're so very concerned about your life, concerned about what God is going to do, concerned about what things are going to be like, that you'll go to God and say, God, help me. Please help me, God. I'm sorry for what I did wrong. You say, well, I won't do that anymore if you'll just do this for me. And then God does his part or better. And a week later, a month later, or a year later, you may not go back to doing the thing you said you'd never do again. But you're doing other things that dishonor him just as much. Because we're concerned about this life. And what we really need to be is concerned about the Lord of this life. Pray, Lord, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, if you are, as a side note, if you are indeed coming in the name of the Lord, realize that you are subject to friendly fire. You're traveling with Jesus. Sometimes Jesus might use you. God forbid, I don't want it to be so, I don't want it to be so for me or any of my family. But Jesus uses people to be martyred, to spread the gospel. Some seed does fall. If we all serve long enough and Jesus doesn't come again, I would almost guarantee you that somebody who calls themselves New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church of East Little will lose their life serving Jesus. We've had several who almost have already. Hosanna. Pray, Lord Jesus. Pray, Lord, save us. Blessed is he who cometh in the name of the Lord. Second thing I want you to see in there is the truth about what Jesus did. It's the truth that we want to spread. That makes sense. But if the truth is spread, we cannot lose. Right? If we just keep spreading the truth, we cannot lose. Our core values are... Uh, Verse as a church is 1 John 1, 3. We proclaim what we have seen and heard, that you, also, that you may have fellowship with us, and our, that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what we do. Just tell people what you have seen and heard. Right? I've stood up here and I've told stories to you from my life. If you can't come up with a story to tell from your life, then you tell one of my stories and say, well, my pastor tells a story how God did this. Right? We saw a woman come to the church and this happened in her life. You don't have to only tell your own story. You tell what God has done. If the truth about Jesus is spread, it will happen. Amazing things. And the gospel will continue to grow. And the kingdom will grow. And people will get saved. But the truth about Jesus is not being spread. Because we're too busy talking about the things of this life. Philippians 1 in verse 15, it says this. Some, to be sure are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. There are those who are talking about Jesus and they're doing it for the right reason. There's those who are talking about Jesus and they're doing it for the wrong reason. And Paul says, I'm good with either one. At least Jesus is being proclaimed. 
If you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and you're not telling people what Jesus has done, my question to you would be, number one, why? If God has done something in your life, God, not, if there's something you could say that God did, not I did it, but God did it for me. If you can say that, why would you not literally tell everyone that? And you're like, well, but the only thing that really happened to me was when I prayed, I felt different. Nobody cares about that. Yes, they do. Because everybody in the world that doesn't know Jesus is very concerned about how they feel. Their, their, the thoughts are wrapped up in this life. They, want, they will want the feeling that you had when you tell them that you had a different feeling. You, they want the feeling. But I submit to you, if there was a feeling and it was a sign that you were saved, then it wasn't the only thing that he's ever done. Now, some people try to make everything that's ever happened in their life out about, you know, about God, what he did. So I was on the side of the road, you know, and I forgot my gas, and I ran out of gas. And then when the state farm truck came along and gave me a gallon of gas, I would say, thank God, God made me run out of gas. Thank God, the state farm truck came along and got me a gallon of gas. Thank God I got to get to the gas station, bought some more gas. Thank God I got a job. I mean, everything in your life is not necessarily God did a miracle. We're talking about the things that you can attribute God did. Now, the fact that there was somebody there to come along and help you, that could be a miracle, but you can't really testify that. You don't really know. The fact that you ran out of gas, it could be a miracle. Maybe you ran out of gas so you wouldn't get hit by a truck, right? It could be, but you can't really testify to that. But there are the things that we know that God has done, and we proclaim what we have seen in her. We tell about what we have seen God do so that others can have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. If we proclaim the truth, we cannot lose People were coming because they had heard the truth about Lazarus' resurrection. They just wanted to see for themselves. Don't expect that everybody you tell that Jesus did something for you is immediately going to get saved. You've got to plant a seed sometimes. You've got to tell them what God has done. Then you plant the seed, tell them what God has done. They start thinking about it, and they're laying in bed at one night at 1 o'clock, and they're going, man, I, I feel so alone. You know, Whitney told me about how she prayed to God, and she gave her life to the Lord, and she suddenly had a different kind of a feeling. I wonder if I could have that feeling. God? Are you there? And God testifies in their heart, yeah, I'm here. And they say, God, I, I want to live my life for you just like, like Whitney told me. Okay, this is what you do. And they're saved, just like that. Nobody's there. But they heard about it and they went to God. I submit to you, as much as I wish it weren't so, that more people have gotten prayed by, or gotten saved by finding God, by going, I wonder if God's there and searching for him and he impressed upon them that he was indeed there and saved them than ever got saved by an invitation in church. The invitation as we have it, we're walking forward, that only been going on for a little over 100 years. So more people got, got saved that way, praying somewhere in a dark wood, praying somewhere beside their bed, or in front of the wine cooler, or on the barroom floor. More people got saved doing that than ever got saved in an invitation in church. I guarantee it. So the, let's real quick, I want, I want you to follow the story with me of how this, this developed of them telling the truth because this became really important as I was studying this passage. So be, go back to 1146 if you're following along in your Bibles. It says in 1146, but some of them went away. So first of all, 45, it says, many therefore of the Jews who had come to Mary and beheld what he, that's Jesus, had done, believed in him, that's Jesus. So a lot of them saw him bring Lazarus back to life and they started believing like, ah, wow, this guy's really something. And they believed in Jesus. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Then 47, therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council. So some of them went away, told what Jesus had done. Chief priests and Pharisees get together. 
And they were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But a certain one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. Now this, did he, <clears throat> this he did say, on his, uh, not on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad, so that from that day on they planned together to kill him. So the high priest prophesied about Jesus. He didn't know Jesus. He wasn't a follower of Jesus. But he was a follower of God. And he prophesied as in his role as high priest that Jesus would die and bring together all people from everywhere in one nation. And then down to 57. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him. Go to 12.1. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus has raised from the dead. Go to 12, not, back to 12.9, and this is part of our text for today. The great multitude, therefore, of the Jews learned that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. Skip ahead to 17. And so the multitude who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, were bearing him witness. And then 19, the Pharisees therefore said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Listen to me. If the world, if people who do not know Jesus, begin to say, those people over there are like that because they say Jesus did this in them, they will be evangelists for us. The lost people of the world spreading rumors, thinking they're slandering us. Well, that guy, he gets up every Sunday morning at 7 a.m. and studies his Bible because he says that God did this in him. He, he preaches or teaches or serves the Lord because he says that God did this in him. What a freak he is. But that very word right there is going to reach people, and they're going to go, is he a freak? But I, I've always known I was missing something. What if Pastor Dan, the guy at New Heights, really isn't a freak, but what if he really is into something? What if he really has figured something out? God, are you there? You see how that works? And so those people that think they are working against us, so when you, you're real afraid, I get it, I am too, I, I, my normal person, I'm real afraid of people talking bad about me, thinking bad about me, doing bad things to me or to my family if I stand up and serve Jesus the way Jesus wanted me to. Nobody wants to see their kids or their friends or their fellow church members or whatever, treated badly because they're standing up for Jesus. To my knowledge, every one of my children has been treated badly in public school for standing up for Jesus at some point in time. Right, Aaron? Aaron was a Christian in like fourth grade or whatever, talking about Jesus, and there was a kid outside, and they were just messing around. There was a kid that had been kind of bullying him, pushed him into a barbed wire fence. You remember that? I didn't know it. But they had a, a science teacher in junior high that was, funny thing is, she started, she was a Christian, but then her husband cheated on her and she got a divorce and whatever, and then she kind of walked away from the Lord. And as every, they, every one of them persecuted her, pers, she persecuted every one of them in their science class as they came up, and I didn't find out until Arden. Every one of them went rounds with her because she's a purely an evolutionist and she believes that creationism is a lie. And if you believe creationism, she'll come after you. 
One of my daughters, I forget if it was you or Amalia, one of them told me that it was the only D they ever got in high school because that teacher persecuted them because they believed in Christ. But that teacher that was doing that was witnessing for Jesus by doing that. Now, I don't want that to happen. You don't want that to happen. We don't want that to happen. But every time the world comes against us because we stand up for Jesus, we win. You've seen it on social media, right? So you put something out there on social media that says, uh, you know, I love Jesus so much, and Jesus did this for me, and whatever. And all your atheist friends, right? All your atheist friends go and cross-promote that on their page and say something nasty about it, right? No, they don't. However... If your atheist friends post something nasty about God or whatever, your Christian friends will get provoked and they'll post it so that all their Christian friends can see it and that they're standing up for it. Now, what's the problem with that? Because when Christianity stands up against atheism, all we're doing is witnessing for them. And when atheism stands up against Christianity, all they're doing is witnessing for us, except they're smart enough to know it. So they don't repost the stuff about Jesus because they disagree with it, and they don't want anybody else to see it. But Christians post stuff, and it's not just the stuff that's atheist, but stuff that promotes uh, agendas that are not godly, and they repost the stuff and speak against it so everybody can see it. Stop it. Generate stuff about Jesus, and if they repost it, fine. But if they generate stuff that's anti-Jesus, you don't repost it. Also, by the way, that means if there's something in their name, like, uh, you know, F me, I'm a funny guy. But it's spelled out. You don't, I don't care how funny what they post is. You don't repost it. Because the F word has no place on Facebook. You've got you to decide who you are and who you're witnessing for. It's got to be about Jesus. I'm all Jesus all the time. That's who we are. And these people, were, they came back and they were, they were told they should, right? They were told, come back and tell us. And they came back and they said, well, Jesus was just over there in Bethany and he brought Lazarus back to life. And they were telling everybody, Jesus brought Lazarus back to life. Jesus brought Lazarus back to life. And finally, the Pharisees said, what are you doing? Shut up. Don't you realize if everybody finds out who this guy is, the whole world's going to turn to him and the Jewish nation is going to be essentially no more. They're not going to have the prominence that they currently have. They're not going to have the power under the Roman government that they currently have. We're going to lose all that and it's going to be all about Christians all the time. See, day one, they figured it out. If everybody goes to follow Jesus, then all the rest of this crap goes to the wayside. It's all gone and we actually get the earth that we were supposed to have in the first place, as long as it lasts because we've already dealt it. It's death blow. The truth, the truth about Jesus must be spread. And if it's spread by me or you or a non-Christian, so be it. So if you t- if, here's what you do. If you're witnessing to a non-Christian, you share the gospel with them and they won't get saved, tell them a couple of fantastic stories. Stories that like you'd go, well, I wouldn't tell a lost person that because there's no way they're going to believe me. Like the time I was driving in my car and the needle went below E in the middle of a snowstorm with my two little children in the back, my wife asleep in the pasture seat, and I drove for another half an hour and I'm driving and it's like... 15 degrees outside, and literally I'm driving like 5, 10 miles an hour on the expressway because it snows so bad, and I, I finally sit up because I'm falling asleep, and I look, and the needle is below E, and the low fuel light's been on all this time, and I can't imagine, how, we're 25 miles minimum from a town, 45 miles from the next gas station, and I'm thinking, okay, here we go, running out of gas on the side, nope, nobody's ever going to come and help, no cell phones, nobody's ever going to come and help because we're going to be sitting on the side of the road, visibility's 5 foot, a tow truck could drive right by and not even see us. Right? So we're going to be sitting on the side of the road, broke down, 15 degrees, soon it's going to be cold in the car. My little girl's three years old in the back, no blanket, no coat, you know how that is. Right? And I'm, I'm in trouble. And I wake up and I say, Sherry, uh, I got to tell you something. And she's like, what? 
And I said, I, I've been driving with a low fuel light on, and I cannot tell you how long I've been driving. I guarantee you it's been at least 45 minutes, because that's when I put my seat down. I, I can't tell you how long I've been driving with a low fuel light on. And she said, well, what, what are we going to do? How far are we from a gas station? I said, well, this town is 25 miles ahead, but in that town, I happen to know the gas station is like, the only gas station they have is like 10, 15 miles away from the expressway. There's no ga- So the next is Mason. That's where we lived. And like, it's like 40 miles. I said, I don't think we're going to make it. And she said, well, what do we do? And so you know what we did, right? Hosanna. Pray, Lord, save us. And the gas gauge went from below empty to three-eighths of a tank while I watched the needle go up. Did you tell them that story? They're going to go, no, that never happened. Or you could tell them the part of the story where I got up the next morning and I was late to work in the daycare and the kids are all going to school and everything and I go to jump in the car and I get in there and but the daycare was like a block and a half from my house. And so I said, well, I'll get, I got to get the gas because it was so bad last night. And I said, well, I'm going to go to the daycare. So I park in the daycare and then I get done at the daycare and I drive to the gas station, still got gas to get there. But when I get there and I go to turn the car off, I notice the needle's below empty. And I go to put the gas in the car and it takes like 15 gallons of gas or whatever to fill the tank. And I thought, that's odd. Because, you know, Ford Con- 99 Ford Contour. I'm like, that's odd. That's a big tank. I bet you they replaced the tank. That explains everything, you know? It took 15 gallons. So then I go look it up in the owner's man. Now 13 gallons or whatever it was. I'm like, that's weird. So then, I, then two weeks later, I take it to get two tires on it. So I had the mechanic. I said, I want you to look at the gas tank for me, will you please? Because I think they changed it out at some point because I put over 15 gallons of gas in that gas tank just last two weeks ago. And he said, now it's got the original gas tank, and there ain't no way you put over 15 gallons of gas in that tank. I said, yes, I did. I swear, I stood at the pump, and I watched it tick off. And he said, no, you didn't. And I said, well, let me tell you what happened the night before. And you're like, even now, you're saying, that's incredulous. It's an incredible story. Do you believe the feeding of the 5,000 or not? That's an incredible story. So tell them one of your incredible stories. The guy that won't believe in Jesus... He's going to scoff at you. He's going to mock you. He may say some nasty things. And when he says some nasty things to somebody else, he's going to, they're going to say, why are you so mad at Dan? Oh, why are you so mad at Dan? Well, because the, let me tell you the story that Dan told me. And as the story spreads, somebody's going to go, but, but, what if, but what if he really did put 15 and a half gallons of gas in a 13-gallon tank? And what if he really did pray? And what if it really did go from way down below empty to three-eighths of a tank and they drove home? We didn't stop at the gas station when we got to Mason because at that time we still had over a quarter of a tank of gas. So there was no reason to stop. And it was late and it was cold. And so we went to our home and the next day the daycare and then back to the gas station and then put in 15 and a half gallons of gas in a 13-gallon tank. I share your story about the stick yeah, God is amazing. God does amazing. Find an amazing story and then share it and then watch what happens. But we won't because we're afraid of being laughed at. We're afraid of being mocked. But don't be because if you're afraid of being laughed at or mocked, Jesus says you love your life and you will lose it. Not me, Jesus. The third thing I want you to see in here is that Lazarus had become a target. Did you catch that? Listen, all he ever did was die. I mean, like, he got sick, he died. You know, who's walking around today going, there was this guy, he's in the hospital sick. I've been thinking about going up there and offing the guy, you know? Why bother? Lazarus dies of an illness. Jesus brings him back to life. People start to hear about it, and they're going, we should, we should off that Lazarus guy too. What did he ever do? 
All he did was die and get resurrected. He literally never did anything to anybody except maybe spread the story of what happened to him. But if he's dead, then the story is discredited. They can say, well, no, that Lazarus guy, he died, and Jesus never brought him back to life. Well, what about the thousands of people that say they saw him? Yeah, they all faked that, all of them, every one of them. They're all liars. Let me show you his tomb. I'll show you where he's buried. And he'll show him where he's buried because they killed him. So they're going to kill Lazarus to stop the story of Lazarus being brought back to life. It's a question as to whether or not they can kill Jesus. They're working on it. They'll get around to it. But they're adding Lazarus on. Before we're done, I'll explain to you why Lazarus wasn't on one of those crosses. It's curious, isn't it? Lazarus had become a target. They wanted to kill Lazarus because through Lazarus, because of what had happened to Lazarus, many people were believing. They still thought death was an option to stop us. Did you think I was going to say to stop Jesus or to stop Lazarus? The world today still thinks that death is an option to stop Christians. You can't stop me. You can't. If you kill me, I go straight to heaven for an eternity. That's where we should be living. That's who we should know we are. And when you own the greatest thing that can tip the odds, you put it on the table. Anybody here play poker in the olden days? Yeah, I played a little bit of poker. I'm not good at it. That's why I'm not offering to play with anybody, and I don't gamble. So um, I, I actually, I will say he's not in the room, so I can say this proudly now. He would razz me. If, I, I whooped the pants off Rick, Ricky playing poker on vacation like three times. Stupidest luck ever. I just kept drawing all the right, I just kept getting all the right cards and every time. So you're playing poker, right? You win some, you lose some. You know what a bluff is? Okay, and your last bet, you go all in. You got a good hand, maybe, or maybe you're bluffing. It doesn't matter, but you really need to win that pot. It's called all in. You take everything you have and you put it out there. Now they only have to match whatever you put out there. Let's say you got hundred bucks left. You put hundred bucks out there. They only have to match the hundred bucks. They don't have to bet all their chips. They only have to bet what you match. But let's say you know you're going to win. I mean, you know you're going to win. You put your hundred bucks out there. They match hundred bucks. You say, well, you take my car. How about if I put my, I put my pink slip in my car, too? Right? If, if you go like this, you say, okay, I've got the hand. It's done. It's dealt. It's all there. I got 100 bucks here. I'm going to go all in. But also, I want to put my car in and my house in. I'm going to put my life in. You know what they're going to do? You think they're going to match that? Their car, their house, their life? They're going to fold. And that's what the enemy's going to do. When we realize that Jesus Christ has given us the ultimate battling chip, the ultimate bet, the ultimate winning method, put your life on the line, you will win. That's what Jesus said. If you love your life and are unwilling to bet it on this thing we call Christianity, you will lose because the enemy is going to call your bluff every single time. He's going to say, ah, but wait, if you do that, you'll be mocked. And we're like, was going to do that too. Uh, we can't be mocked. Try something different. And then it's going to come down to, here's a soul that leads to a thousand souls. You tell somebody, this person about the gospel and they get saved, thousand people are going to get saved. And the enemy's going to come and he's going to say, don't you talk about Jesus today. Whatever you do, don't talk about Jesus. We're like, I'm going to talk about Jesus. Talk about Jesus, you're going to be mocked. we like, pastor said, I got to not worry about being mocked. If you talk about Jesus today, you're going to be late. Oh, man, the boss said I can't be late. Let the boss be late. Pastor, not be mocked. Whew. 
I'm going to take it. You know, I can get another job. But you may die. You might die. You tell this person about Jesus. You lose your job. No food on the table. Your kids may be going hungry. You won't be able to pay your bills. You get mocked. One day, you may die. You may die because you tell somebody about Jesus. And Satan's going Satan's to say that to you, and you're going to say, oh, well, you know, dying for Jesus is, is too much. No. Jesus has given you your life as the final bet. It is the, the topper, the capper. It's the golden star. You can put your life on the line knowing that you will not lose it. If you give it, you will not lose it because he will ensure you have it for an eternity. That's why martyrs so often, in fact, <clears throat> you know how many Christian martyrs in all the history of mankind, you know how many Christian martyrs have been recorded as the moment they were being burned alive, crucified, whipped to death, run under chariots, put in the Colosseum, you know how many of them went, wait, wait, no, wait, wait, <laughs> I was just kidding. Not actually a Christian. You know how many of them have done that? Very few. None have ever been recorded historically. And I submit to you, the ones that did probably weren't Christians at all. Are not, look it up. Find out how many Christians went to the stake and as they were about to die, they were accused of being Christian, tried for being a Christian, and then as they were about to die, said, oh, no, I recant. Very, very few. And if, you, and, and if you could examine that person's life, you'd see they didn't understand who Jesus really was. And I submit to you, that may be where we're living, where most of the church doesn't realize that they get to be like Lazarus and lumped in with Jesus, and their life is on the line. And you never did anything to deserve that compared to the rest of humanity, right? There should be nobody out there that's trying to kill you. But if you're walking with Jesus, Jesus says, you will wind up where I am. And if you wind up where Jesus is, where did he wind up again? On the cross, then resurrected, then heaven for eternity. And they didn't kill Lazarus. This is our conclusion then. After that, they didn't kill Lazarus. They still believed that they could stop Jesus by death, and they didn't kill Lazarus. But in killing Jesus... They did exactly that which was prophesied to start the gospel reaching all the nations. Then Jesus came back on the third day, spent 40 days with the beginners, the disciples, the beginners of the church, prophesied that they would be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit to go and spread that word to everywhere in the world. If the gospel has reached you, then you have been lumped in with Lazarus and Jesus. So well, all I did was ever live my life. I died because of sin, but you were de dead in your transgressions and sins, trespasses and sins, depending on your translation. So I was dead. He brought me back to life. Why should people hate me for that? Because if you really have been brought back to life, you'll be bringing people to Jesus. And when you start doing that, you're going to be in the crossfire. But the crossfire against Jesus looks a little different than it does in the traditional explanation where it's God and evil spirits, for example, firing at each other and we're somewhere in the middle. This crossfire is us with Jesus in the middle and everybody's shooting at us. That's why the church stands together. 
That's why the family of God stands together. That's why we love one another even up to the point of death. And we wind up, you're going to wind up, if you do this, I'm asking you to do exactly what you probably would wish you would never have to do, which is stand up despite persecution. Stand up despite somebody being mad at you for doing so. Share the gospel despite disagreement, mocking, whatever. If you stand up, you're going to wind up where Jesus wound up. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify thy name. And when you arrive there, and you've got your life in the pot, you're betting who you are, all your wants and concerns and desires. When you arrive there and you're all in, then you can guarantee resurrection. God will get the glory because you won't be doing it because of you because you'd have to be a sadist to want to be mocked or persecuted or hurt for the cross or otherwise. You'd have to be a masochist is actually the word. Sadist is when you want to hurt other people. So you'd have to be a masochist to want to be hurt. But if you stand up for Jesus and you go all in and you risk your life, He who gives his life will save it. And he who serves me will be there with me. That's what Jesus said. So I'm asking you today to take every opportunity to spread the gospel, to tell people about Jesus, to live for the Lord. Pray, Lord, save us, and really believe that nothing else will save you. Nothing else. And then in following Jesus, spread your crazy stories of what God has done and other people's crazy stories of what God has done. Because as those crazy stories of what God has done circulate, the gospel is circulating. And when people start to believe or think or doubt or have an inkling, and they go, hmm, maybe I could look for God. That's all it takes. Because he was never far away in the first place. But what's actually happening, unfortunately, is that God orchestrates our lives so that we will come into contact with people who have come into contact with Jesus, and the people who come into contact with Jesus are so concerned about their life that they're not so concerned about making sure the truth about Jesus is getting out. doesn't mean that that person won't hear it some other way. I'm not saying you're their only chance to be saved. God guarantees every person an opportunity. He says that if someone would die and has never heard the gospel, they'll hear it before they're judged. So everyone will get an opportunity to be saved. But if we love Jesus, and if we're willing to pray, pray, Lord, save us, and we're willing to come in the name of the Lord, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And when this truth is spread, we will win, and we will become a target. But in becoming a target, God has given us the very tool we need. You can take your own life in your hands and say, I will not be stopped. We're going to have a song of invitation at this time, and Uh, ask the praise team to come and lead us such as we are but if you're here today and you realize that you've been held back by worldly concerns maybe you're afraid to give or serve or step out because you're afraid you won't have enough 
maybe you're afraid to speak up for Jesus and tell others because you afraid you don't know enough and somebody will ask a question you don't know the answer to. Maybe you're afraid someone will mock you. If you live that crazy life of commitment that has you in church every Sunday and every Tuesday and serving two, three, four days a week outside of that, serving God whenever you can, wherever you can, people will go, you're nuts. And you don't want people to think you're nuts. Or maybe you've been praying for the last several weeks for that promotion, that money, that outcome in court, that, that event to occur in your life, rather than praying for God to use you. And you realize, you need to repent. And I'm asking you to repent today. And turn back to the Lord. And let Him give you your very life and all of its concerns so that you can put that on the table and you can win the ultimate reward. Would you stand with me and sing this song? And then as we're singing, if the Lord has spoken to your heart today, then you respond. You come, come share with us, whatever it might be. Please do listen to more of our podcasts. Check us out at churchtoledo.com. Lots of things you can do there. And also download our app, Life for Toledo, in your app store on your cell phone. God bless you as you continue reaching new heights in Jesus, overcoming evil with good right where you are, and let's unite the kingdom of God to advance forward in Jesus' name. God bless you today.